Hi Taylor, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, so, uh, you know, in, in the course of the interview, if I may, if I if I uh, say something which is not true, or maybe if I make some, uh, if I say something which is probably false, just do correct me. Some, sometimes my research is a bit off, uh, so feel free to stop and correct me. Uh, if you don't, I'll just assume okay. uh, what I say is uh, accurate. Uh, so, uh, you were a prodigy, uh, a musical prodigy. Um, so how has that kind of shaped not only uh, your childhood but also uh, you know your experiences to, uh, as an adult or has it well uh well I started playing piano when I was 4 years old and um and I was really into it I I growing up my sister uh passed away uh when I was 3 years old she was 17 and she was a uh, young jazz and rock pianist and so I was kind of um really inspired by her. And so I wanted to start playing piano when I was pretty young. So I started taking lessons when I was four. And um, I wasn't a, uh, I, 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 it would be hard to consider myself a conventional prodigy because I see a lot of like little kids who are just super geniuses and, you know, they can um, play so much stuff like some six-year-olds now, especially in the era that we're living in with YouTube and just everything on the internet. Um, you see that all the time. There's some really talented kids. Um, I never really considered myself to be one of those. And I certainly wasn't um, in the conventional mold of any kind of young prodigy. Um, I just really liked playing piano. And um, when I was about five or six, um, my teacher, I was just taking, you know, regular beginner piano lessons. And my teacher noticed that I like to um, change the things on the page and make things up. And so they recommended that I get a jazz teacher. And so when I was about six, then I started studying with a, um, a guy named Randy Masters um, and uh, really just learning a lot about improvisation. I also had a lot of um, uh, heroes growing up, musical heroes. And, and one of the biggest was a contemporary pianist, David Benoit. And um, I was really obsessed with his music and really just he was my total um, idol. And um, when I was, um, I think I was eight years old, I, I had the chance to um, open for him on a concert. And um, and he uh, that was a that was a huge moment for me. And, and as a kid, um, uh, you know, if you're a kid just playing music, especially in public, uh, you get a lot of people telling you you're good at something because it's kind of a novelty to see someone that young playing. And um, and so, it, it, you know, by by people seeing a young kid playing gigs, um, it kind of uh, it's it's the right time growing up to to hear people tell you you're good at something. So um, it it. it I think getting called a prodigy was something that just kind of gave me a lot of confidence to keep doing what I uh, loved to do. And I remember asking my dad when I was eight, I remember asking him how much David Benoit had to pay each time he performed. And he told me, he's like, no, he gets, you get paid to do that. And so then I was like, okay, well, I'll be a musician then. Um, so I was, I was fortunate that um, as far as the prodigy stuff was concerned, I was just fortunate that I had people around me telling me I was good at something. And um, and that helped me just keep doing it. Um, and so I definitely am thankful to have grown up having that um, thing at a certain point, you know, then when I was 11, 12, 13, then, you know, you kind of grow a little tired of, of being called a prodigy or a, um, you want your music to be taken seriously, just uh, objectively as music. So 
Um, but I think growing up with that, um, the prodigy tag, uh, even though I never really considered myself, uh, and still looking back, you know, videos of me when I was eight years old, nine years old, um, I, I definitely am nothing compared to, you know, real prodigies that you see videos of, of young kids that are just total amazing. I just was a kid that, uh, started playing piano at a really early age. And I'm, I'm fortunate for that because a lot of people, it's really hard to, um, determine what they want to do for, for a living, you know, even later on in life and stuff. So I was really lucky to, um, figure out what I wanted to do when I was, uh, pretty young. So, um, I'm thankful that a lot of that stuff happened and, and kind of helped to, um, uh, propel me, uh, at the beginning of my career. Oh, can you tell us, I mean, since you started playing the piano, so at, at such an early age, uh, what was your, uh, what was your school schedule? Like, I mean, did, were you, did you used, I mean, did you get to skip a lot of classes because you were doing music or were you like a regular school attendee attending all the classes? How was that? Well, I, I always went to, I never went to a music school, uh, or an art school. I, I just went to, um, for me growing up, the biggest, um, the biggest thing for me was to be at a school where all my friends were. So, uh, kind of based all the decisions growing up on, um, uh, I went through uh, preschool through fifth grade at one particular school, uh, growing up in Northern California and then sixth grade through 12th at another school that, uh, all my friends went to. So I gravitated towards, uh, wanting to go to that school. So, um, you know, for me growing up and having a social life and having a lot of friends, that was always a big, uh, important thing that also I think affects things musically and, you know, touring with a lot of people and stuff, just being able to get along with people and be around people and things like that. But, as far as the school was, were concerned, um, especially once I got into about sixth, seventh grade, I definitely would be missing quite a few classes uh, at times to do um, shows or gigs. And um, and the schools that I went to were always really cool with that. And um, and sometimes if I was doing an interview or something, I'd wear, you know, the school sweatshirt and you know, there's, there's, there was some things where they, they were, they were pretty lenient on me for, for missing things and, and, um, and all of that. So, um, yeah, I was, I was really fortunate to have really accommodating school environments where I could be doing all of that outside of school and they would, they would, um, you know, accommodate that and, and, and allow for, uh, if I needed to miss some classes or that sort of a thing. Uh, but I think uh, even as a student, I mean, uh, I think you, I think you became the member of the, I think you became a member of faculty for uh, Stanford Jazz, uh, Stanford Jazz Workshop. Uh, I think at about fifteen. Uh, can you tell us what uh, what what exactly does that does that mean, and you know how you got into that, how you got to play that, how you got to play that role? Yeah, I started going to Stanford Jazz Workshop as a student when I was eleven, and. Um... It's a really fun workshop um, that happens over the summer in the Bay Area, and um, and I'm still to this day I'm a, a part of their um, I'm a member of their board of directors and um, faculty member every year. Um, in 25, 26 years, never skipped a year being a part of Stanford, and um, and and so I went there as a student for four years, and they um, wanted me to be, become on the faculty when I was 15, and really since I was, um, 12 or so, I was, you know, got a feel for teaching really early on and, um, realized that that was something that, um, uh, it, it kind of goes hand in hand with musical development, being able to express your ideas and, and, um, help other people 
solve their musical issues and and share ideas and articulate kind of what you're going through in your development and all that um i think is 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 really important but i always love doing it and um yeah i started teaching really when i was 12 at uh san jose jazz san jose jazz camp gave me the first opportunity to join the faculty there and all that and so then when i was promoted a faculty at a stanford jazz workshop it was um i already had some teaching under my belt and uh and it was fun to be on that side of things and and at the same time always you know remaining in a student mentality where i always feel like i can you know learn from anyone and certainly learn a lot from my peers and people that i'm around and people that i play with and and all of that but um it's not the main thing that i love to do but i do enjoy teaching when the opportunities um happen uh kind of more on a occasional basis you know i teach some private lessons uh i've always taught private lessons but usually really occasionally like one day out of the month um do a few lessons and stuff and that's kind of continued into the zoom era and all of that over the lockdown that was the first time i decided to finally just do some online uh teaching um which I had tried not to do for my whole life. Um, but, you know, we all kind of learn new, uh, learn new uh, abilities and skills and all that over the lockdown and quarantine and, and all of that. We all had to wear a lot of hats. So um, learning how to teach online was something that, um, you know, I, I realized that, you know, if you take the time to learn how to have a nice setup and everything, it can really it can really work well. Um, but um, but I think in my deep in my heart i'm a performing musician that that's you know i would sacrifice anything to just um that's what i love to do in life i think that's what i do better than any of the other things i'm asked to do at times but um but i do enjoy teaching um as well um and sharing ideas and hearing what other people are going through and all of that um i think at this point i want to transition to uh, since you already spoke about performing you know you being a performing musician uh but before getting to you know uh, uh before getting to that part uh you, uh, you have a lot of uh, you know you've released multiple albums um you know lucky to be me let it come to you daylight at midnight three falls etc uh so can you uh can you talk a little bit about how you approach uh, you know every album how you approach composition of these uh, of uh, you know of a song or of a of a melody or, or whatever you're you're going to compose how do you approach it uh from idea to uh maybe you know till it's released uh etc sure well every project has been so different um there's eight albums of my own that i've released uh and it started when i was 14 years old i released um the first album of mine it was called Taze Groove and um had uh, it was a trio album Seward McCain was on bass and uh Dan Brubeck on drums and um and yeah i um you know that around then also i got asked to be a sideman on a few other um projects for the first time it was my first time kind of you know getting my feet wet with uh being in the recording studio and what all that is about and everything and so every single project's kind of changed um the next record i made was a live record called live at filoli uh that i recorded on my 16th birthday with my trio of john shiflet and jason lewis and then um and we made several other records too um one for a Japanese label called Taylor's Dream that was my third album and then uh, an album called Resonance uh which is the fourth album and um and by then those two albums I had had kind of um uh or really those three albums you know I was starting to develop kind of a real concept of um that trio that I had with 
Jason Lewis and John Shiflett. John Shiflett passed away a couple of years ago, sadly, but um, we, you know, we were collectively kind of coming to a nice place as a trio. And, um, and so those albums were a chance to kind of represent some of the um, things that we would be performing live or be working on as a trio. And then when I did Lucky to Be Me, um, that was uh, right when I, I got signed to Concord Records and we made kind of a different type of album that would feature two different rhythm sections, um, one with Christian McBride and Lewis Nash and one with Billy Kilson and James Genus. And, um, you know, it was a combination of a lot of different different type of album entirely. Um, the album after that, Let It Come To You, was kind of um, an album that came from uh that i still feel really proud of that album that was one of my favorite experiences of you know it was the first time i feel like in an album i felt like i um i heard more of myself than any of the previous projects um especially lucky to be me was um it was a great opportunity working with um al schmidt and um but it was really more of like a album where it was you know largely trio or quartet and uh and they were, you know, there's a lot of standards and things. Let It Come To You was more exploring some of my own writing and um, music that was more personal to me. Um, Daylight at Midnight was a different um, concept in that it was the first time I had um, used vocals on my projects. And Becca Stevens was on that. And it was a chance to do some covers of um, different songs that come from outside of the jazz world. And um, and Tree Falls is probably the most personal of all of the albums. Um and uh, that's the most re recent one, but it was a chance to, uh, it took me 11 years to um, finally release that album. Um, uh, we recorded in 2018 and then re released it this last year, uh, but it had a, a chance. To, I've done a lot of writing for symphony orchestra and um, writing for multiple vocalists and things like that. And I wanted to showcase that on that album. And it's almost, uh, almost entirely original, um, original music on that album there was we did one arrangement of skylark the classic standard and there was another standard that we recorded that that was supposed to be used as a bonus track but that hasn't been released there was an there was another standard but um but yeah that that album was more a chance to for me to you know showcase some of my lyrics and and um and a lot of my own music and was it was more personal kind of told a lot of stories of my life and my family on that album. So every single album's had kind of a different, um, intent to it in, in a way. And, um, but I, I'm glad that it's kind of gone in the direction of being more personal. You know, it takes a long time to, um, the meaning behind tree falls is, is, uh, it references that phrase of a tree falls in a forest doesn't make a sound. And, um, because there was over the last 11 years, there was a lot of different music that I had written, worked on, performed, all that, but I just hadn't released a lot of things. And we live in a society that's kind of about oversharing in a way. You know, people are on Instagram, you know, it's like there's some people that it's like, do you ever practice without the camera on maybe, you know, and, uh, you know, people want to share every single what they had for breakfast and then, hey, look, I can play this, I can play this. And I kind of took the opposite um mentality in that in that i just i didn't feel the need to share everything but then you know at a certain point there was so much music that i wanted to get out in the world and it doesn't exist until people hear it so um you know that's that was kind of the meaning behind that record was to finally let people hear the music that's deepest in my heart and um and hopefully i can continue to um you know be willing to be open and share sharing all of that and sharing the process of 
the music that I write. Um, and so, yeah, they all really had a different um, intent or, or way about going going about the process. Uh, but I think that's just um, every project, you know, I, I it's nice when they can all be very different. You know, um, I don't think I would want to do um, just have the same experience every time going into the studio. So they've all been really different. I've learned something. Um, I've learned a lot from all of those different uh, recordings, the process of putting all those together and all of that. Um, you, you, you spoke about you being a primarily uh, uh, performing musician. And I was going through your Wikipedia page and, you know, it had a list of uh, names of all the venues that you had performed. Uh, so uh, mo uh, rather than asking you, I mean, is there any, is there any venue that, uh, that you wanted to perform or you still have in your bucket list to perform, but you haven't been, I don't know, uh, you still, you haven't performed. Is there, is there a venue like that or have you covered everything uh, that there is to cover? Um, yeah, maybe the White House. That would be cool. <laughs> I've 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 done a concert for uh, Bill Clinton private, but that was a private thing. Um, it was in California, and um, but yeah, I mean, it would be you know I'm open to any any experiences. I mean, certainly there's a lot of places that I've played also as a part of other groups. Um, I used to be in Chris Bodie's band for about five years, and there was some places that we played in his band that that you know uh were bucket list places for me to to play like the big stage at carnegie hall or red rocks just all sorts of different um cool experiences and you know one of one of the dreams always is to be able to play in one of those places with your own band doing your own music and that sort of a thing so um i'm just you know i'm i'm, I'm open to uh Anything that comes my way, I think there's a, a lot of times, sometimes you have the best gigs in um, in the places you least expect too. Um, I, I have a strange, strange track record with a lot of musicians that I play with where there's some shows where we go and do a sound check and sound check, just everything sucks. You can't hear the, you know, can't it, like the monitors aren't right. Like just everything just feels weird. And then you go that night and have the best gig of the tour. Um, and sometimes it works in reverse too. So, um, I think so a lot of times it comes down to the audience and that was one of the hardest parts about, uh, you know, 2020 was, was, you know, playing music or putting on, you know, online performances with no audience. And to me that just, if that was going to be the future of the stuff, I would, I would, I'd probably have to just go, go back into coaching football or something. Cause I, I just, to me playing music, the whole point is to, um, play for an audience and, and, and share that with the audience and, and not being able to see them. And, and especially in that weird year of having to like just everything solo piano and you don't, you don't hear an audience, or even if you play with other people, there's no audience there. It just wasn't something that, um, the human connection is everything to me. So, um, a lot of times the audience largely determines if it's a good gig or a bad gig. And, um, without any audience there, it just doesn't, to me, it's, it, it never feels real. So, um, I'm just really, really thankful that, uh, been touring a lot again since, uh, about April of 2021 and, um, and a lot of that continuing now into this year, hopefully we get past this, um, kind of surge going on right now. Uh, hopefully it's a smaller, uh, window of time where, where things are being pushed and postponed and all of that. But, um, yeah, I, 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 I'm just, uh, you know, I think that also that period of time put everything in perspective where I'm just any place that has a, 
you know, a warm audience and good equipment, good sound. Um, those are, those are the different components that really make or break a, a, a like, you know, shows and how good they're going to be and all of that. So I just look forward to any great situation, you know, it doesn't matter the size of the venue and stuff. Usually it's, uh, I, I mean, to me, it's always more fun. The bigger the place is, the more people I get less nervous when there's more people in the, more people in the audience. Um, something like the Hollywood bowl is, uh, it's about 17, 18,000 people. And, and the times that I perform there, I feel way less nervous than in a club that's like 150 or 200. You can see people's faces and read into their, you know, you start getting into your own head and just like, well, what do they think of this? What do they think of this? But the bigger the audience is, the bigger the amount of support that you get. And um, it just kind of fuels the adrenaline in the moment. So um, I don't know. My favorite places to play are, are maybe big. Sh I guess the easiest way to sum that up would be big shows with a lot of people and in the audience and and um good energy good supportive crowd and and good equipment where we can actually uh everyone can hear each other really well is a big component to that so um yeah um you you have some experience uh, you know uh playing for uh i mean for for movies as well i mean in the in the in the show business i mean uh i think you you composed the theme music for uh, the movie detachment um how was your experience, uh, you know, working, uh, working for movies um, and other cinematic art forms? Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't done too much um, composing for film, but I've done a little bit of it. And the first chance that I really got to do that was working on Detachment, um, which was a cool experience. It was directed by Tony Kay and um, Adrian Brody is, is the lead actor in that. And also he was the one of the exec executive producers and. And so I got to actually work with uh, with all of them together. And, and um, they that was a unique experience because they had me come in first and and do the full temp soundtrack by myself, solo piano, just uh, watching the movie on mute a bunch of times and improvising. They wanted a totally improvised score. And then once I did that and they pieced that together, they sent me down to L.A. to work for a week with uh, the Newton brothers who are uh, just an incredible um, Andy Grush and Taylor Stewart. They're they're an incredible uh, film composing team. And um, and I kind of just laid down some different melodies and and played, the you know, different piano parts and all that. And then they took that and ran with it. And, you know, they worked months and months on that um, on that film. I just contributed some some different themes and all of that. But um, but that was a that was a very um, cool and kind of crazy experience to be a part of that. And then uh, more a, a little bit more recently, I worked um, a little bit on the um, Miles Davis Miles Ahead movie with Don Cheadle. And um, and that was my contribution to that was um, kind of back choreographing a scene with Don. Um, he showed me a scene where there's a, a dancer and um, uh and there's a piano player playing, but you can't see his hands. And he wanted me to, um, you know, come up with some music that would fit that scene, uh, would fit what the dancer is doing. But also in that scene, Miles Davis is there on the side of the side of the stage and he's listening to it. And he gets an idea from hearing that to write um, uh, another uh, song called Fran Dance. And. So, you know, it was kind of a interesting challenge. I, I asked Don Cheadle, like, do you so you essentially want me to 
go back in time and plant an idea in Miles Davis's head. And he's like, that's 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 what it is. So um, it was a, a very, very bizarre thing to kind of think of at the time. But um, but we worked together that day to kind of create something that would fit the movements in the theme uh, in that scene and and uh, also hint at that song and stuff. And so I'm always, you know, my my take on uh, composing for film, it's it's something that, um, you know, whenever those opportunities come up i'm i'm happy to uh let those happen and you know it's not something that i've ever wanted to uh deliberately hunt down all the time you know there's some people who are professional film composers and that's what they do and that's their main thing and and um but when occasionally i i get involved and you know i've played on different scores here and there of other things but um i i enjoy it when it occasionally happens it's just uh it's something that I like to let it organically happen. Um, and I'm and I'm glad also that I, I was going to stay in college to um, to officially study that because I wanted to do more of that. And I kind of when I left, I dropped out of USC after about a year and a half. And um, I figured that, you know, to get film scoring opportunities, some a little bit of just kind of organic luck would be involved anyways. And so um, by by leaving school, it enabled me to um, really jumpstart a lot of different things career-wise. And uh, and as I kind of had assumed, you know, a lot of a, or a handful of different film composing opportunities have just kind of uh, come up over the years really organically. Like, you know, the director comes to a show or something, you meet someone there. And, you know, so I've, I just kind of let that happen. And, and hopefully there'll be you know, plenty of other opportunities in that regard. Um, but it's not something that I would want to do full full time because, again, my heart is just in in being a performer. And um, but I do I do enjoy it's you know, it's a really interesting when especially when you're considered a jazz musician or you perform um, and it, it, within a structure where you go out and do a performance and you take solos. Um, and people applaud after the solos, that sort of a thing. It's a little bit of an adjustment then to when you write music for a film, it's a it's a humbling experience because you have to be invisible but powerful. So, you know, it's 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 no matter what you play, it's not about you. It's about serving that scene and serving the um, the emotion behind it. And um, probably the most recent thing with um, in, in that respect and where I learned a lot was um, I played all the piano on um, Spike Lee's docuseries. Um, NYC epicenters. It was uh, on HBO um, a few months ago, and it was a four-part docu-series um, about 9/11 and COVID and how New York City is really re- resilient and has survived a lot of different things. And um, working with uh, Terrence Blanchard, um, playing on his score and learning from Terrence. I play in Terrence's band and learn things from him all the time. But I think that was that was just I was blown away by just how deeply Terrence understands how to serve a scene and how to serve a story and um, create a powerful musical backdrop that, um, you know, ideally when you're watching a show or you're watching a movie, you want to be heavily emotionally invested in the storyline and what's in the content and what's going on. And the music should just be kind of that invisible force that drives the emotions behind things. And um, and you never want to do something to just poke out or make it about yourself, because, again, you're supposed to be invisible, but powerful. So, you know, it's it's a it's a cool experience to, you know, take elements from that mentality, too, and put them back into the way that you perform when you 
uh, play as part of a group. You know, um, when I'm comping for someone in a group, uh, I like to be the same thing, you know, supportive, invisible, but powerful and, and, and ways of um, being a part of the larger sound. You know, I think that's what makes for more of a complete music when you're performing or when you're um, playing behind the scene, you know, either way you want to make something emotional and memorable. Um, and when you're performing, sometimes there's times where you're the feature and, and, you know, in those moments, it's it's about just always doing what's called for in the moment, you know. So when you're performing, sometimes to do something big and flashy and and um, and where, you know, the focus is on what's going on, sometimes that's needed. And then sometimes, you know, your your role is to support the larger sound and um, and really just, you know, taking your ego out of it. Ego can be very useful to just drive confidence when you're playing where you know you can summon something great in a in a moment that um would be would be needed or called for but um it's also uh you know something that you have to just treat it with a deep awareness of what is the overall musical statement being made and how do I fit into that um in whatever role is needed in that moment and uh luckily I play with a lot of musicians over time that have kind of um had that mentality and I learned from one of my best friends Julian Lodge is a phenomenal guitarist and and uh playing with him ever since I was 14 years old uh really learned a lot from him about how to be um about musical humility and and fitting into a situation um just serving the larger sound there was different times in my group where Julian would be playing and you know maybe on a whole song he might play just a couple chords and he felt like that was all that was needed in that moment, you know? So I, I like to look at piano in a third person kind of way in that same way where, you know, sometimes we don't need a bunch of runs and fast things and solos and all that stuff. Sometimes we just need a sensitivity or um, the ability to fit into something else that's a larger vision. So um, from any of those contexts of, of writing behind uh, film or TV things like, it's it's just taught me a lot about what it means to um uh create powerful music that that's not driven by ego you know um i think uh finally um you have received multiple uh, grammy nominations um how important is it for you to you know win a grammy maybe is that, is that a fact <laughs> well yeah i mean um it's been I'm lucky that that Tree Falls got nominated for best contemporary instrumental album and um and it's going to be fun to to go to it again. They just moved it to Las Vegas. They postponed it by a couple months and all of that and you know, it's it's fun to go and and take part in that cuz it's a really rare you never know. I mean, it took it was 14 years ago that I got the first couple of nominations and 14 years is a long enough time where you start to wonder if that's ever even going to happen again. And, um, and so I felt unbelievably surprised and grateful and, and thrilled to, to, um, get another one this year. And, uh, and especially for this record too, it really does mean a lot to me because, um, this album tree falls was just not really marketed. It wasn't really, um, it kind of went under the radar in a lot of ways. Didn't, um, and uh, which was disappointing because uh, I poured my heart out into that record. And it's my my the thing I'm most proud of musically in my life is that is this record. And and um, and so for it to get some recognition, that's a that's a super cool thing. And 
Um, and just, you know, it really helps, helps practically to get a Grammy nomination too, you know, there with just different opportunities that come from having a current one. It's interesting because it's, you know, the two nominations from 14 years ago, we live in a society where it's like, what have you done for me lately? You know, like, um, so it makes a big difference to have a current one. Um, because those two from the past, it's like, they're from long ago. Um, but you know, in, in, in setting up tours and, and with my band and you know just all of the different things i want to do it's a really good it's really uh practically useful and uh really helps with that now to win that would be um you know just extra extra cool um uh, you know i i uh i'm grateful just to be um considered along alongside the other um musicians that are in that category rachel eckroth is a good friend and great great pianist um she has a terrific album called The Garden. Um, we used to play together in Chris Bodie's band. And um, so I've known her for a long time and really happy for her to get the recognition for her album. Uh, Mike Lettieri is great, great guitarist and um, band leader. Uh, Steve Gadd, legendary drummer, and Randy Brecker and Eric Marienthal. Uh, Eric Marienthal also was on my my album, uh, Lucky to Be Me. But uh so I, you know, all of, I just have tremendous respect for all the other people in that category. And so it's cool to be mentioned alongside them. If I was to win, it's a nicer gift bag that you get at the end of the night. Um, I, I play with a lot of Grammy winners who have told me about what it's like when you win. And, um, you know, when I, I remember 14 years ago, um, I lost both categories, uh, lost to John Williams and Michael Brecker. Um, and, but I remember that the the losing um, gift bag was it was just all these grape grape flavored shampoos. And uh, and, <laughs> you know, I've, I've heard that the winning gift bag, you know, maybe you get a watch in there or you get some really cool stuff. So I don't know. It'd be cool to get the nice gift bag. And um, but I'm sure also just opportunity wise, it would it would really help with things. And, and so to win one would be um, it would also be like a nice. Um, you know, testament to how many people on this particular project work so hard uh, at putting this album together. Josh Junta, the my co-producer and engineer, he was um, just unbelievably patient and um, so skillful with everything that he did to edit and mix and and record and and have the shared vision and all of that. And all the musicians that played on this record just played their asses off and. Um, you know, there was, there was just so many people worked really, really hard on this project. So it would be a great testament to them to kind of, to win. I, I, I feel like, um, I feel like it's a really deserving record of, of stuff just cause it's, I think we made a really good record. I feel really proud of it. And, um, so if, if, if I was to win, um, that would be, that would be absolutely phenomenal. It would be really cool. And my mother is, um, my mother has, uh, dementia. She has very progressed dementia and, and she can barely communicate and all that kind of stuff. But the any any anytime I see her, I'm able to share some good news. It really brightens her up. So I'd love to be able to have like a little Grammy that she could uh, she could hold in her hands. It would be kind of a cool thing. So um, so I don't know what you know, we'll see what happens. And I'm going to go. I'm going to be down there in Las Vegas. And um, and if I and if I if I win, awesome. If I lose, I'll probably play some poker that night. You know, it's Las Vegas. So. You know, it's uh, <laughs> I got to I, I got to try to win something that night. So uh, on that note, Taylor, thank you so much for taking the time. And uh, I wish you all the best for this year's Grammy and uh, not only this year, but for every year from uh, from 
to see what I get. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Well, thanks so much.